You're in for a real blast from the past this week on Mind Matters News as we revisit the top 12 most overhyped stories in artificial intelligence from 2020 with the members of our very own Bradley Center Brain Trust. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Marks. Greetings. There are many forces that shape the AI news we read. One is a materialistic ideology that unavoidably leads to the conclusion we are meat puppets. And this conclusion says that AI will someday duplicate us. There are many other reasons for all of the hyped AI stories we see today. Media is everywhere and competition is fierce. Articles with provocative headlines and content are clickbait for the browsing consumer. So we're going to count down today the AI Dirty Dozen, the top AI hype stories for 2020. And we are joined by two members of the Bradley Center Brain Trust. And this is the first time I think that they've heard me call them the Brain Trust. And I, I hope you like the title. Uh, first, we have Jonathan Bartlett. He is the director of the Blythe Institute. The Blythe Institute focuses on the interplay between mathematics, philosophy, engineering, and science. And Jonathan is the author of several textbooks and edited volumes, which have been used by universities as diverse as Princeton and DeVry. And he is a senior fellow of the Bradley Center. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here. It's great. We're going to have fun. Uh, and uh, uh, the other member of our brain trust is Dr. Eric Holloway, who works for the National Institutes of Health and is a current captain in the United States Air Force. Uh, he has served in both the United States and Afghanistan. He is also a senior fellow of the Bradley Center. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. It's awesome to be here. Okay, great. We are going to start uh, with number 12. This is the Dirty Dozen AI Stories of 2020. This is number 12. It's an article from the MIT Technology Review, and the, the headline is, The Way We Train AI is Fundamentally Flawed. And the subtitle is, The Process Used to Build Most of the Machine Learning Models We Use Today Can't Tell If They Work in the Real World or Not, and That's a Problem. Eric, what do you make of this? Yeah, this is actually a really insightful article, and it's true. The problem they identify crosscuts every major machine learning technique out there because what we call AI is actually more properly called machine learning. And essentially, it's just a curve fitting. You have a bunch of data points, and you find the best curve that fits those data points. Although it's a little bit more complex than just a curve, but it's the same idea. But if you keep that idea in your head, it's also easy to see why there's a problem. So let's uh, start with a really simple example. Let's say you have a 2D graph and you have a single data point on that graph. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Now I ask you to fit the best line you can to that single data point. There are so many different lines that can fit that one data point, and they're all very different lines from each other. And that, in a nutshell, is the problem with modern AI. Even though we have millions or billions or even trillions of data points, the models themselves that are being trained on these data points are still like this line being trained on a single dot. The models themselves are so, so, so complex that even with billions or trillions of data points, the models are still very underspecified. And like with the dot example, you can have both a line sloping up and a line sloping down, which both perfectly fit that dot, 
but on other data have very different predictions. And so that's the problem with modern AI. Even these fancy techniques like deep learning, the deep learning model, you'll have many different models that fit the same vast data sets. And these models will have very different predictions on new data that is not contained in the data set. So when you hit the real world and you're not just in a lab anymore, the data you're going to be analyzing is going to be very different. And so that's why all these models start to fall on their faces once we go into the real world. And the basic problem is that they're underspecified. There's just too many different models that are very different from each other that can fit the same data. Artificial neural networks are supposed to be um, bona fide. Once you train them, you're supposed to subject them to a bunch of test data or validation data just to make sure that they, they work and they do what they're supposed to. This is data which was not used in the training. And it seems that here they're saying that things not used in the training are, for some reason, that the data to which the neural network is subjected is not equivalent to the original training data. I mean, this is old news, but I don't think they do a lot of cross-validation in deep learning like deep convolutional neural networks. Is that true? Um, well, they'll do uh, validation as they're training it. Uh, but the problem there is that their test set, which is supposed to be independent of the training itself, actually starts seeping into the training. So they still don't achieve independence there. Yes, yes. That, that's an old story in financial neural networks is that we, um, I, I, I was friends with Jack Marshall, who was a professor of financial engineering. And he had all of these people come in and say, I have trained a neural network to forecast the market. And they used this idea of training the neural network and then they tested the neural network. But what they did is they tested the neural network and they say, well, you know, this test didn't work very good. I'm going to change my neural network. So they changed the neural network and then they tested it on the same data. And they says, well, this works a little bit better. And then they went back and they did it again and finally came up with a result, not realizing that by the person in the loop and the testing data being applied again and again and again, it became part of the training data. I think that's the point you're making. Right. Exactly. Which is really, really interesting. Any thoughts, Jonathan, on this? Well, the other thing is that, um, Anytime you have a model, you know, there's things that match the model and things that don't. There are things that are inside what you can expect and things that are, are not. And one of the problems with a lot of the, the AI work is that there isn't really a clear definition always of why the data is being chosen and why those specific fields. Sometimes it's just what could be measured. Um, and also there's not a good clarity about what's inbounds and out of bounds. For example, in, um, in oil pumping, when they uh, have the motors uh, that pump the oil, they have these curves that they do, and they have uh, equations that model uh, pump performance on these curves. Well, the models are only valid within specific regions. And outside those regions, not only are they not valid, they are completely off the mark. Like there is like no relationship between data and reality once you step a moment outside of those bounds. And uh, that's what I, I see happening a lot with AI is that, you know, something may be within the bounds on the things that, that, that people think to train for, but then that's not necessarily how they're going to be used in the real world. And once you make that switch, then the, then the models aren't valid anymore. Excellent. Yes. You know, George Gilder wrote a piece for the Bradley Center called Gaming AI. 
and he comments that AI is restricted to something what she would, that he calls ergodic. Basically, that data from the past is enough to forecast data of the future. And uh, I think that that is something that that's a very simple concept, but there's lots of things which are not ergodic in the sense you can't forecast the stock market. It is an ergodic. The data of the past will not allow estimation of the future. So the, the other part of, of ergodicity is that um, you can't actually predict the impact that the AI system itself will have. So if you think about the stock market, not only can we not necessarily use the past to predict future performance, but let's say that I came up with a tool that for some reason could. Well, what that tool can't model is what will be the effect of that tool in the stock market. And so even if we could have uh, an ergodic notion of the stock market, um, that would fail as soon as we introduced a new AI tool that looked at it differently and started trading differently. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Number 11, transparency and reproducibility in artificial intelligence. Now, this is a paper from a very prestigious journal, Nature, and it questions some of these things. Eric, what is, um, what is the hype here? What's the problem? Well, yeah, the problem is now AI is not merely like a research project, but it's also a product, and it's a product of some really uh, big companies like Google. Uh, I think Google has said like it's an AI first company. I think Facebook has too. So it's now a really big part of their brand. And so it's in their interest to inflate AI as much as possible. And uh, we see this a lot with the results they released, like uh, with the AlphaGo. And I think now with their alpha fold protein folding, uh, they don't actually release anything that people can use to reproduce their results. They just say, hey, we ran these massive neural networks on these massive data sets with massive amounts of compute, and we got super great accuracy scores. And you can use our model to get our same scores, but we're not going to really tell you how we did it. We might kind of hint at it, but we don't give you enough specifics where you can reproduce. And, 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 and also, it's actually out of reach of pretty much anybody who's not Google, because they, these uh, these computations cost like millions and millions of dollars and use massive uh, computer farms. You know, there's an old saying in engineering that uh, in theory, theory and reality are the same. In reality, they're not. And I think when you reduce something to practice, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's what's going to be important. On the other hand, Eric, doesn't Google make uh, available to the public this incredible software platform they call TensorFlow? and other AI sort of um, sort of software that they can use. But you're not talking about that, are you? No, it's, no, it's not the, it's not like the tooling. Uh, well, they don't even release all their tooling. They, they give us little bits and pieces of it enough that other people will start like getting addicted to Google, but not enough that we can really do what they do. Uh, so yeah, they release TensorFlow, Flow, but uh, there's always a difference between the tools that Google releases to the public and what they actually use. But also, yeah, what I'm talking about, though, is like the specific technique. So TensorFlow is a framework that makes it easier to write these AI algorithms, but the actual algorithms and models themselves, that is the secret sauce that Google is not really releasing. I see. So it works and just trust us. Right. I see. Okay. There's even a bigger picture issue why AI is not scientific, and that gets back to its fundamental assumption uh, that everything a human mind can do, you can do with a computer. 
like everyone in the AI field just takes that for granted. They're like, oh yeah, of course. You're saying that AI doesn't follow the scientific method. Yeah, the very premise of the field is unscientific. Like science is all about questioning your assumptions and testing them before you accept them as valid. But AI is the complete opposite. They take their assumption and treat it as valid and then do all their uh, research and stuff based on that assumption. Boy, that's an interesting viewpoint. And yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with you. That's uh... Yeah, it's, it's ironically like how people like to talk about creationism, where they start off with their theology and try to make the science and data fit it. That's exactly the same with AI. They start out with their assumption and try to make all their science and data fit their assumption. Goodness. Great observation. Number 10, will artificial intelligence ever live up to its hype? This is a article from a very prestigious publication, Scientific America. And the subtitle to the Will Artificial Intelligence Ever Live Up to Its Hype is Replication Problems Plague the Field of AI and the Goal of General Intelligence Remains as Elusive as Ever. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, this uh, actually directly builds on what we were just talking about. So because we have this training problem where they don't really train their models in the way that fits the real world and they don't really have the uh, constraints well-defined and they don't really follow scientific methods and they're not even scientific fundamentally. So it's kind of unsurprising that once you hit the real world, then all the hype kind of deflates. And the author of this article, he looked at, I think, uh, 40 different startups, AI startups, that were originally like really hyped. They're going to change the way the world is and everything. And after the fact, once they've actually started trying to use their product in reality, then all of their venture capitalists decided, yeah, these uh, companies aren't really living up to the hype. The, the AI is going to be much less impactful than we originally thought. That's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I think there's always been hype associated with AI. In mm -hmm. fact, in 1957, I ran across a New York Times article, 1957, that the Navy had come up with artificial intelligence that in the future would be able to walk and talk and reproduce. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was the hype in 1957. Yeah, this yeah. was back when Bernie Woodrow at Stanford and Frank Rosenblatt, I believe at Cornell, we're, we're doing rudimentary artificial intelligence, and the hype was there. Well, even at the very beginning, uh, the field was started by like uh, Marvin Minsky and Claude Shannon and some of the luminaries of information theory. And, and they were like, yeah, you, let's just get like 10 of us really smart people and give us funding for like a month, and we'll give you intelligence that can learn just like a person, do all the things just like a person. I've heard of that. Do, do you know the date that that happened? Uh, not the quite, no, I don't, I don't have the specific date off my head, but yeah, I'll write an article on that. But yeah, it's pretty funny. They're like, okay, just a month and then we'll have something completely like human intelligence and it'll be done. And here we are like, uh, three or four, actually, uh, eight de decades after that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's not a, um, not an apparent problem. The other thing in this article, there there is the assumption that general artificial intelligence, or I think it's called AGI, artificial general intelligence, you know, it keeps changing names. It used to be hard intelligence, hard artificial intelligence. But there's the assumption that this can be achieved. Right. And I think that both you and I are on the page that there are fundamental challenges in computer science that are going to prohibit this from ever being achieved. Yeah, and the very fact that we have to differentiate the fields now actually points to the problem. Originally, when Sean, Shannon and Minsky were coming up with the field, they're 
like, oh yeah, it's just a computation. We'll just have a fancy algorithm and that'll do it. And now we're finding all these algorithms we thought were going to be the AI turn out to only actually work in very, very small domains and very restricted data sets. So that's why now we have to be like, okay, well, we have AI that does something, but it's not actually artificial general intelligence because they're all really narrow domains that they actually work on. And uh, this is actually, uh, there's a fellow, I think he's a fellow of the Bradley Institute, but anyways, he's working with Dembski, a gentleman named Eric Larson, and he's actually going to be releasing a book, I think, sometime next year about this fundamental difference between minds and machines. He's quoted in his article here. I look forward to uh, Eric's book. Eric's book is going to be published by Harvard University Press. So he has a very, very prestigious pedigree, and that should be released uh, released very, very soon. And so, yeah, we're excited about that. Okay, we are counting down the Dirty Dozen Hyped AI Stories of 2020, and we're up to number nine, AI Superstar, an AI robot is cast in the lead of a $70 million sci-fi film. This was reported both at Mind Matters News. And by the way, we're going to supply links to all of these stories on the podcast notes. So you'll be able to review them yourself and check the accuracy of our of our claims and commentary. This was published in June 2020 in The Hollywood Reporter. And apparently, uh, we're going to have a robot in the lead role of a sci-fi film, a $70 million sci-fi film. Eric, what do you make of that? Well, first of all, I ask, why is this news? Like, we've had animatronics in movies uh, since, like, Star Wars or uh, the Muppet movies. So (laughs) (laughs) so this is just a fancier Muppet movie. That's right. Yeah, they're just fancy puppets. It's like uh, Sesame Street, but with a bit more electronics. Uh, And it's uh, really funny reading these articles because there's a whole lot of uh, anthropomorphizing, excuse me, going on with these AIs. They go through great pains to uh, make it sound like the AI is learning something. They're practicing all their lines and they're trying really hard. They're trying to make it sound like a real person uh, when all they're just doing is some engineer, underpaid engineer in the back is uh, running the algorithm a couple times on new data sets. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, right? Yeah, it's really people underneath. If you have visited Walt Disney World or Disneyland, you go to the um, Hall of Presidents. And it was big news when Disneyland opened, I think in the late 1950s, that they had these robots. And these robots would come out and they would be, they would be dressed up like the president and they would, they would deliver a speech and the mouth would be synchronized to the words. And everybody was really astonished. Now, clearly, we've come a long way from that. But this idea of animatronics, how did you say it? Animatronics? Yeah, animatronics. Animatronics has has been around for a long time. In fact, I read somewhere that Disney patented his Hall of Presidents, his technology back back a long time ago so that nobody else would would duplicate it. Also, I I think that maybe this has very little or nothing to do with uh, artificial intelligence. I don't know. They say that they trained this robot, so maybe there's there's a training algorithm associated with it. But we see a lot of what I refer to as seductive optics in these um, in these presentations, in these movies, and in some of these hype versions, wherein you come out with a robot. One of them that was recent, recent maybe being about a year ago, was Sophia. And this was supposed to be a really, really 
exciting thing. And people looked at it and said, oh my gosh, artificial intelligence. But the robot Sophia was nothing more than an animatronic robot that synchronized their mouth movements and their facial expressions in order to communicate. And the optics, which was to have it inside a human form, had nothing to do with artificial intelligence. The container of artificial intelligence often has little to do with the driving artificial intelligence itself. Yeah, and who's to say whether there's actually not like a person controlling the bot behind the scenes? Like this is actually really, really old, is 1700s or so. They had a supposed chess playing uh, robots, um, but really there's a big table where the robot sat, and underneath the table there's just a person hiding in the table moving the robot's arms. So this is really old. It's just, yeah, I remember more things that. change, the more they seem the same. And, you know, isn't that in general true in a much, in a sense to today's artificial intelligence? All of the intelligence we see is due to the computer programmer asking the artificial intelligence to yeah, do exactly. something. And we might be surprised at the output. I mean, you talk about AlphaGo making the incredible move when it beat Lee Sedell, the Go champion. But that was a surprising move. But there was really no creativity there because, my goodness, that that software was trained yeah. to play Go. And that's what it was doing. And it was doing it a lot better than humans, just like calculators calculate a lot faster than we do. And, and cars go a lot faster than we can run. Uh, so it, it's surprising. It's, uh, it's kind of cool, but it certainly is not creative. The creativity came from the computer programmer. Right. And also, if you look at these AlphaGo type things and you look at what they actually do, they even have to achieve that result. They go through like billions or trillions or pentillions of calculations and checks to even arrive at these results, vastly, vastly more than any human, even over the history of humans playing Go, ever do. And so once you look at it more as just like brute force, trying every possibility, it doesn't really seem so impressive anymore. Wow. Fascinating stuff. We have already gone through number 12 through number nine. We're on number eight. And uh, the question here, is AI really better than physicians at diagnosis? We're told AI is going to replace lawyers and doctors and, and accountants and all sorts of people. Uh, so let's look at a case of the physicians. This was a piece written um, on Mind Matters News. And Eric, what do you think? Do you think that AI will ever be better than physicians at diagnosis? Uh, well, I don't know if they ultimately will or will not, but right now they definitely are not. And this gets back to something that John brought up last session about just how unscientific AI science is. This particular author, he took a look at 10 years worth of studies for deep learning algorithms on medical problems, and only two of them actually relied on randomized trials, while 81 uh, were non-randomized. This means basically people can just pick and choose uh, the type of data that makes their algorithm work well. So really their results don't really tell us anything about how well their stuff works in the real world. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, um, Gary Smith, who is also one of the fellows of the, uh, of the Bradley Center, he talks about the idea that when you publish a paper based on statistics, uh, you got a problem. And that 90% of those papers that are published on statistics are Wrong, They're, and not wrong, but faulty, I think is the word he used. And indeed, that's the case when you have incomplete or unstructured data that you're trying to train with. Is, is this your point? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, basically, the, they didn't follow very strong protocols, and uh, so they can just make a 
thing that works really well in the lab, and we have no idea if it's going to work in real life. And they tend to not work very well in real life. Uh, yeah, Gary, Gary points to a case of, what did he call it? He called the Texas sharpshooters fallacy. And the idea is, is that if you have a barn door and you paint a bunch of targets on it and you shoot at the barn door with an arrow, you're going to get close to a bullseye if you have a thousand targets up there. So there was this one case about pancreatic cancer, and they began to look at correlations with pancreatic cancer. And, well, uh, you know, they thought it was caused maybe by smoking. No, it wasn't caused by smoking. What about, um, I, I don't know, what about chewing tobacco? No. Chewing tobacco, drinking tea? No. How about smoking cigars or pipes? No, it didn't correlate. What about drinking coffee? Oh my gosh, there was an incredible correlation there. Right. So they published this in the New England Journal of Medicine and coffee futures fell and uh, <laughs> people stopped drinking coffee. And in fact, in the end, it turned out that it was totally a, just a coincidental correlation. And subsequent studies showed that the correlation was just coincidental. In fact, another study said if you drank a lot of coffee, your chances of contracting pancreatic cancer were improved. So, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And I think that that's one of the problems that we have, but, but you hold out promise for the future maybe, huh? Uh, yeah, I would say, and probably if you restrict the domain enough, you're going to be able to pull out some stuff. But the other problem too, is how they tend to build these systems. They, they get a data set from some doctors and then they just go off for a bunch of years and try to make some algorithm that scores highly. What they really need to be doing is working much more closely hand in hand with the doctors and trying to optimize particular parts of their workflow with these algorithms instead of just trying to replace them. Okay, so current any claims that AI is better than physicians is probably incorrect. Right. Okay. Uh, number seven, AI can implement video games just by watching. This was from an article called uh, Learning to Simulate Dynamic Environments with Game Can. Yeah, this one is kind of fun to look at, but you won't really be selling these video games that makes for millions of dollars. So it's able to learn some kind of feedback uh, matrix based on looking at the game screen and the player's input. And so you get something that looks a little bit like Pac-Man or a little bit like that game Doom, but it doesn't stay coherent for very long. Like walls will appear and disappear and uh, ghosts will pop up and disappear. Yeah, so it's not super coherent, but because you already kind of know what's going on with Pac-Man, you can kind of squint your eyes and say, yeah, that's a Pac-Man game. Oh, so in other words, they train some artificial intelligence with a number of games, and this artificial intelligence creates a game. Is that the idea? Right, right, right. Yeah, and it's not creating a new game. It's basically just uh, reproducing what it already learned. Very interesting. Yeah, so they train it on a whole bunch of screens of Pac-Man and player input. And it just learns how to map the input to different screen frames and kind of finds the gradient between those. Uh, so what they can do with that is they can like uh, randomize it and have come up with like random variants of Pac-Man. But still it remains Pac-Man in general, just a much weirder kind of Pac-Man. Now things are much more sophisticated today, but I had a friend, uh, Russ Eberhardt, who trained a neural network to compose music. And he used only four or five songs. And when you listen to the synthesized songs, yeah, you could hear the refrains very clearly from the original songs. The AI is much better than that today, but it sounds like something similar is happening then. Now, they call this GAN. GAN stands for what Generative Adversarial Network. Tell me what a GAN is. Yeah, I believe that's what it is. Uh, so 
what it does is first it learns like a basic model from its input and then it generates a new variant of that input from what it learned and then it learns from that again and so it's kind of a feedback cycle of it learns a little bit and then and uh, adds that to its data source and then tries to learn from that again. I'm not quite sure how that works so well because it seems like you'd end up perpetuating errors you learned all over the place. But Well, you do. I think GAN is the source of the fake faces that we see reported. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's really interesting. In fact, our editor and our uh, director of Mind Matters, Austin Egbert, just published a paper on GAN where wow. he applied yeah, where he applied GAN to radar sort of data for uh, extrapolating data when it was when it was a little bit sparse. Oh, so, very nice. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's still at the formative stages, but yeah, GAN has some interesting things. But in terms of this particular application, where they tried to extrapolate games, it didn't work too hot, huh? Well, it, this is what I see with pretty much all the uh, convolutional neural network type results, it, like uh, the GPT result which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. If it's generating text, if you look at just a few words or a few sentences or maybe at the paragraph level and you squint your eyes, you can kind of get something that makes sense out of that. But once you start stepping out and getting the bigger picture, it falls apart because uh, the neural network is really good at learning these very closely related uh, relationships, but it doesn't really have a concept of the overall structure of anything. And so that's why you see these video games too, like Pac-Man, you move around and within like four or five squares, you see pretty much the same maze. But once you leave an area and come back to the area, then it starts misremembering what it came up with before. It's kind of like a, a bad dream of Pac-Man. Fascinating stuff. Uh, we're counting down the dirty dozen hyped AI stories of 2020, and we're on number six. And that's what... Uh, uh, Dr. Captain mentioned, <laughs> Eric mentioned, GPT-3. Those are th four alphanumeric letters that rhyme, GPT-3. And there was a headline that says there's a subreddit populated entirely by AI personifications of other subreddits. First of all, what's a Reddit for those of us who are not uh, socially media savvy? Yeah, so Reddit is just uh, it's a site where people post links and comment on them. So it's just uh, um, Reddit is grouped into categories and subjects, subject matters, and you can go and uh, find find what what's interest to you. And people post links and articles, and uh, and then you make lots of comments. But it, it kind of develops a social gathering type of a feel. And so basically, there were some there was some posters who were uh, posting within um, some of these subreddits these subcategories and um, it took a while before anyone noticed that these were actually bots that were, that were posting. Well, it's interesting that people were able to notice now GPT three stands for, I looked it up generative pre-trained transformer three. And some of the headlines of GPT three were just kind of scary. Wasn't this when it came out, the, the developer said this might be too dangerous to release because of all the fake headlines that it would generate. Yeah, they've they've made lots of different claims about GPT three, and it is indeed. I mean, it's impressive as a demo. I mean, it it really does do some uh, some impressive text generation. Um, in fact, I think someone actually built a code generation system based off of it, so you could kind of describe in plain words what you wanted the code to do, and it would actually generate a functional code to do what you asked it to do. 
So it's actually got uh, quite a bit of uh, kind of wow uh, sizzle to it. But it turns out that it's not um, – once you try to get, get it to do anything serious, it kind of loses its luster. Yeah. Uh, GPT-3 was trained with billions and billions of articles, including of all of Wikipedia and a bunch more. And I think one of the big claims from GPT-2 to GPT-3 was this great massive increase in the amount of training data that it did. And you could just take a few words and prompt it and boom, it generates a paragraph corresponding to those words. And a review in Wired said GPT-3 was provoking chills across Silicon Valley. But like you said, it was one of these real quick sort of things where you didn't get into too much of depth. And I think it was you in your article that you wrote for Mind Matters News said, it's very impressive if you don't look too closely. Is that right? Exactly. The uh, It's one of those things where when, when people see some of these uh, results, I think people start expecting things that they really shouldn't be expecting from these sorts of uh, systems. For example, one thing that was really impressive is that this is a text processing engine, but it turns out that it can do math. It can do basic arithmetic. But it turns out that once you get past three digits, it doesn't do basic arithmetic at all. Oh, really? Yeah. So like if, if, you, so if you asked what's, what's the number before 100, it would tell you it's 99. If you ask it what the number before 100,000 is, it would say 99,009, which, which is not the number before 100,000. I see. Okay. Anyway, so it's one of those things where because it, you know, I can just imagine somebody, you know, some mid-level manager playing with this and, you know, giving it lots of, uh, uh, you know, simple arithmetic things and just assuming that this thing, since it, you know, did all of the examples he threw at it actually could do uh, arithmetic. And, you know, if someone, if he then said, hey, use this as our engine for this, and we expect, you know, people throw arithmetic at it, then as soon as they get into four digit numbers, it starts breaking. You know, I, this is the sort of thing that if you take, if you take these systems too seriously, then uh, they can wind up causing uh, damage in the end when you expect them to be more than they really are. Yeah, that's what I understand also. GPT-3 was able to write like short paragraphs that were just astonishing in their coherence. But if you ask them to write a chapter, all of a sudden that coherence was lost. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, somebody did, uh, I forgot if it was, a. I think they did a series of blogs with GPT-3. And uh, they actually were really good, but it turns out that they said that they did it unedited. But really what they did is that it's unedited in the sense that they didn't actually modify words, but it is edited in the sense that if it was if it said something nonsensical, it would try they would try something else. Now you talked about there's a subreddit populated entirely by AI personification of other subreddits. That's the title. That's the title of the article. Uh, but you mentioned that somebody noticed that this was a product of GPT. Unless somebody volunteered it, how did they how did they know that this was generated by GPT? Is this something that can be recognized by people? Do you know? Um, I'm not. I don't remember exactly how they wound up figuring it out. But I mean, I, at the end of the day, usually AIs wind up saying something that's completely nonsensical. Um, one of the things that GPT three does, um, somebody was poking at it a bit, and uh, you know, if you asked it basic questions about the United States, it could tell you you know, who is the president of the United States and in different times, but you could also ask it, you know, who is the 
president of the United States in 1600? And it would give you an answer. And, uh, you know, not, not recognizing that, you know, the United States didn't exist in 1600. And you could ask it, how many eyes does a blade of grass have? And it would give you an answer of, uh, you know, blade of grass has one or two eyes. I saw that. Yes. I saw that article. Yes. So yes. And so and that's usually how you, how you wind up, uh, sussing these out is they'll, they'll start up, you know, talking something that's, that sounds logical, but winds up being more or less nonsense. Well, this is one of the limitations of AI, isn't it? Is it can only think inside the box. It can only interpolate on its training data and extrapolation outside of the box has to require creativity and artificial intelligence doesn't have that creativity. So that's the reason it could be fooled so easily. Or at least that's one of the indicators that it's not as wise as it seems. Okay, number five, lack of sleep could be a problem for artificial intelligence as we continue our countdown. Now, this is from Scientific American. Lack of sleep could be a problem for artificial intelligence. Does artificial intelligence need to sleep, Eric? Yeah, I looked into this a bit. It's a little bit hard to figure out what they mean exactly by sleep. And it's, it seems to be one of those cases where they're trying really hard to make an analogy behind some kind of obscure mathematical thing to do in everyday life just to make AI sound more human-like. Uh, my best guess is, well, what they say they do is they train these networks and then they have to subject the networks to waves of noise that, in their opinion, resemble something about the brain waves during sleep. And then apparently the networks are able to learn more effectively. Um, what I suspect might actually be what they're doing is they're just adding random perturbation to the uh, weights after some training, which is a standard technique. And they just happen to like one particular way of adding noise to the network. You know, that's that's what struck me too. There, there's a method in training neural networks called simulated annealing, wherein you do basically add noise into the training process to make it much more effective. And there's other things such as weight saturation avoidance, where all of the weights, uh, uh, all of the interconnects are, are so big that they kind of saturate each of the neurons. And so you have to, you have to back them off a little bit. So you have to halt your training in order to, in order to back these things off. But these are problems which have been known for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. These are techniques which have been, which people have practiced for a, for a heck of a long time. And, this is an example of what I refer to as seductive semantics. It's like you said, Eric, that they are trying to make this thing sound more human, and they do that by trying to relate it to human attributes when the relationship really isn't there, is it? Right, right. So it's very, yeah, it's very frustrating. Okay, we're down to the final four. This sounds like uh, a basketball tournament, the final four. Number four of the hype list is... Elon Musk is claiming self-driving cars will be here next year again. And this was a uh, this was an article which was I believe written by uh, Jonathan for Mind Matters News and uh, I, I think that self-driving cars have made some advances but this is clearly clearly hype isn't it Jonathan tell me tell us what's going on. Bob have you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? Yes, I have. He wakes up to the same environment every day, again and again and again. Yes. Yes. And so this is this is kind of what we have. Elon Musk has been claiming that he's going to have self-driving cars next year 
since 2016. Now, I have to say, part of me loves Elon Musk, and part of me can't stand the guy. And uh, I, I appreciate his humor. I appreciate the the fact that he, you know, kind of uh, is more approachable than a lot of the other tech billionaires. But there's also this kind of hucksterish salesmanship that just really drives me the the, the wrong way. And uh, so he's been saying um, he's he's actually been selling self-driving cars since since 2016. He's people are literally paying him thousands of dollars for this feature that doesn't exist. And uh, he says, oh yeah, it'll, it'll be here next year, next year, I promise. And uh, he says that your uh, car will actually be worth more. You know, most people, when they buy a car and they drive it off the lot, uh, it's worth, it's, you know, it's, it's worth less as soon as you drive it off the lot. And, and he says, oh, our cars are going to be worth more because you're going to be able to make money with them by simply sending, when you go to sleep, you can send them out uh, to earn money for you by being a robo taxi. So you don't have to be there. And um, he, he makes claims like this and he makes them every year. And, uh, and he, he's also, it's not surprising that he's making them right now because uh, he's uh, last year, he did it right before a $2 billion uh, capital raise for his company. And uh, now he's doing it right before a $5 billion. That's billion with a B, a $5 billion capital raise. Uh-huh. And so he keeps on in, in 2016, he said that you're going to be able to summon your car from across the United States and it would be able to, to come and get you on its own, finding uh, charging stations on the way and, um, and, and it wouldn't even need a driver. And so the only, the only thing that could stop that was if we didn't get regulatory approval. Anyway, he keeps on saying that it's going to be next year, next year, next year. He's saying it again, and um, anyway, I, I I just wish the media would stop falling for it. Is it his company supposedly now worth more than Apple? Oh yeah, it's so basically he's got this uh, company. So Tesla Motors is a you know it's a tiny percentage of the car market, but it's basically worth more than the rest of it combined in terms of the the value of the stock. Yeah, who said you can't make money with science fiction? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, George Gilder, who's one of the co-founders of the Discovery Institute, in an interview said that uh, Elon Musk is a tremendous entrepreneur, but kind of a retarded thinker, which I thought was an interesting statement. And in a conversation that I just had with Gregory Chaitin, that's going to be a podcast which comes on in a while. He said his heroes in life were Stephen Wolfram, and Elon Musk, he really thinks highly of Elon Musk and his uh, his innovations. And clearly he's done some stuff, but he's also a salesman, isn't he? Yeah, it, indeed he is. Well, on that note, is Elon Musk's innovation just look like somebody read a couple of sci-fi books and decided to try and sell the ideas to the government. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you're, okay. You're really, you're really high on Elon Musk. I can tell you, uh, the challenge with self-driving cars, as I've learned, is that there's five different levels. And there's kind of this mushy fuzziness when he talks about self-driving cars. And he's assuming the top level, isn't he, self-driving cars that will literally replace the human being in all sorts of environments. And I think that there's a lot of doubt that level five will ever be achieved. And the lower levels, I think I learned from you, Jonathan, in one of your posts at Mind Matters News, that we're actually driving self-driving cars right now, according to the definitions of self-driving cars. Is that right? Yeah. So basically self-driving, um, 
in the lowest levels, it just means that the car is doing some driving feature without you. And so um, if you think about cruise control, um, although most car companies don't use the term self-driving to refer to cruise control, that actually technically fits the definition of uh, level one self-driving. Um, most of the time, if a car company refers to their cruise control as being self-driving, they're usually referring to adaptive cruise control, which also looks at uh, the cars in front of them to see how fast they're going. But really, any sort of cruise control technically fits the definition of level one self-driving. So if my car were really badly out of alignment and did right-hand turns all by itself, would that be self-driving? <laughs> that, it, it, you, you, it, indeed, it may. Okay. Yeah, the car has a mind of its own. You know, my daughter has that thing on her car, which I drove, where it where you put the cruise control, and if you if somebody if somebody pulls in front of you, it automatically adjusts your speed to have three or four car lengths, mm-hmm. and you can choose how many car lengths there is. And I love it. I yes. don't have to wear out my thumbs and pushing all those buttons and slowing down and speeding up. It does it automatically. So I like that. But that's at a lower level. And Musk, in talking about these things and driving across country, is kind of assuming the level five. Isn't that right? Yeah. So level five means that the that basically you don't need a steering wheel um, and you can go anywhere. So um, so any place that I would normally want to go with my car, uh, there's no no limits. Uh, I just you know tell the car where I want to go, and then I can go sleep in the back seat, and it will take care of everything. My heritage is in West Virginia. In West Virginia, there are dirt roads which are notched out of the mountains. So imagine a, a bunch of mountains, and you put a little you put a little cut in the mountains, and those are the roads. And they're dirt roads, and they're single lanes. And you are driving along, and you meet a logging truck coming at you, and you have to scooch over right to the edge of the uh, of the road where you're just about ready to fall over the cliff, and that logging truck just sneaks by you. I don't think self-driving cars at level five are ever going to achieve the skill of driving on a West Virginia road. I can't, I can't conceive of it. Yeah. So the, the, the thing that makes uh, me doubt the ability for level five, uh, you know, that specific instance is, is a good one, but just in general, um, a lot of our city streets, uh, the way that we drive, the way that the streets are set up, they're, they're geared towards uh, social navigation. That is, we understand what the car next to us is doing. We have, um, you know, we have a kind of, we can look at someone and, you know, wave them through. Um, sometimes you get other hand signals that are not as, uh, not as happy. Um, <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of social navigation. I actually, sometimes in really conduct, congested traffic, people will uh, actually invent a lane. I've seen that happen before in traffic where um, in really crowded streets, you know, they'll, they'll, if the, if the street is wide enough, you know, cars will just sometimes decide to, Hey, let's add a, add an extra lane to the street and um, they'll crowd together in, into a new lane. And so there's all these social aspects to driving that I don't think that um, you're going to be able to, to uh, code a computer to understand all of these different social aspects. Unless absolutely everybody else has their own smart car. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So now now they're going to enforce everybody to have their own smart car just so that one smart car will work. Do you think that that's going to happen? Bill Dembski wrote, wrote a thing where he said that one of, one of our choices is to 
either make the self-driving cars smart enough to appropriately navigate or we are going to have to change the environment and all of the rules to adapt the artificial intelligence to us. And the question is, which one do we do? I think changing the environment is the one that's more likely to happen. Um, so, that, And that's level four. So level four is basically where you say, um, within these defined parameters, the car will drive itself. With the additional stipulation that if the car ever goes outside those parameters, it has a safe enough way to you know get out of the tr- out of the way out of the traffic so that you don't have to immediately assume control so if you can imagine like let's say you might have a level 4 that can navigate neighborhoods so it's going at a low enough speed that if it ever encounters a situation that it doesn't know how to handle it could simply pull over and stop and wait however long you needed to to go and for you to go and assert control over the vehicle Um, But level four, the car is doing all the operations. You can sleep in the back, but there are, there's only a limited uh, segment of road or a limited set of environments uh, where, where it works. And that's kind of where, where most self-driving that's been successful has gone is they've, they've done high resolution maps of areas. They've determined that in certain locations, there's not going to be a lot of unexpected things happening. Uh, they have uh, streets that are easy to navigate. Um, they're at low enough speeds that they're not going to hurt anybody. Um, the roads are are isolated enough that they're you're not going to worry about uh, pedestrians accidentally coming across uh, suddenly. And so by by mapping it out and having a enough knowledge of the environment, they can make a car for that environment. And that's generally what they've been doing um, when they're successful. You know, Jonathan, we just did a paper with uh, with a student of mine, Sam Hig, and it was about uh, the idea that the more complicated an AI system is, the more the more contingencies that you have, and many of these are unexpected contingencies. So if you have a you have a broad AI system, you're going to have all sorts of things which the AI is not programmed to respond to, and it's unavoidable. And it requires a heck of a lot of tests. So, this idea of uh, of the environment fooling you is is very real. There's going to be lots of situations, lots of scenarios that uh, that are unexpected. So, we we have that uh, Elon Musk is claiming self driving uh, cars will be here next year again, uh, reliving Groundhog Day as 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 Jonathan said. But uh, we are making some advances in self driving cars, but. Maybe not at the level five. Number three, can AI really know when it shouldn't be trusted? The title of the article from Science Alert is Artificial Intelligence is Now Smart Enough to Know When It Can't Be Trusted. Eric, what's going on here? Uh, Well, first of all, I'd like to note that the title does not say that AI can know when it should be trusted. So you could just have an AI that says, never trust me, it's always going to be right. (laughs) <laughs> that that goes back to fundamental detection theory, right? You have a hundred percent detection, but you have a you have a very high percentage of false alarms too, huh? Yeah. Um, now, as to what they actually did, they added some kind of confidence level to their results. So, uh, if it's really low confidence, then you know you can't trust it. But the converse does not apply. They can't say that when it has high confidence, then you can trust it. Um, there's a, a 
very solid, well-proven theorem called Gerdell's Second Incompleteness Theorem. And it says for any system that can reliably tell you that things are true or false, it cannot tell you that it itself is reliable. So if they ever did create an AI system that can tell you, oh, you can trust what I say, then at that point, you know, you precisely cannot trust it. That reminds me of the Cretan's paradox. He says, uh, everything I say is a lie. <laughs> so that's that's where you're getting to. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, also, so let's uh, put it back down to a more practical level. Let's say it does have some kind of confidence level and you can say it's fairly uh, non-confident about some results and others. Um, you still may not even want to trust that uh, lack of confidence level. There's another theorem called Rice's theorem which says uh, any non-trivial property of a program is impossible to program itself. So you can't have a program that can uh, always say that, hey, my confidence level is reliable. Um, so if they can precisely set it up in a constrained environment, then you can probably get some kind of confidence out of it. But it definitely, they cannot do anything like the headline claims, which is a artificial intelligence that's smart enough to know when it can't be trusted. That's way too general to be something you can actually do with computers. What's even worse is uh, if you read the first paragraph of that article, the first paragraph of it just goes to total science fiction land. It says, how might the Terminator have played out if Skynet had decided it probably wasn't responsible enough to hold the keys to the entire U.S. nuclear arsenal? As it turns out, scientists may have just saved us from such a future AI-led apocalypse by creating neural networks that know when they're untrustworthy. Oh, good grief. Okay. Yeah, one of the big problems with the AI hype is the confusion of science fiction with science fact, and ah, people need to be more cognizant of that. We're counting down the dirty dozen hype. Uh, AI stories of 2020 with Eric Holloway and Jonathan Bartlett. We're on number two, and this one just, I don't know, kind of makes me mad. Number two, Sam Altman's Leap of Faith. Eric, what is going on here with Sam Altman? Who is he? And what's his Leap of Faith, which is totally incorrect, I believe? I would actually say Sam Altman is totally correct. He's actually taken the AI kind of trend to its logical conclusion. Um, because if AI is truly as great as it should be, like uh, we can actually reproduce human intelligence and then it can feed into itself and then take off forever, then uh, the claim, the crazy claims he's making here are actually correct. So I would say it's not Sam Altman that's crazy. He's just the logical conclusion of a crazy movement. And he says uh, stuff uh, like, I'm only going to focus on creating AI because once you get AI, it's going to invent absolutely everything else. He calls it the light cone of the future. And then he makes these funny uh, venture capitalist cells like uh, instead of saying, hey, uh, we're only going to give you a certain percentage of the profit. He says, well, once we you get 100 times return on what you invest in us, then we're going to have to give the rest to charity. Like he he's over promising. <laughs> in kind of a uh, trying to undersell his overpromising, pretty, pretty hilarious. Now, this guy is uh, it's no slouch. He is the, what is he, the, the, the president of OpenAI or something like that? Yeah, well, no, he, he, yeah, he has a fantastic history. as a great uh, venture capitalist. He came up with some uh, company called Looped when he was just in his early 20s. They sold for millions, and then he took control of Y Combinator, which is one of the most successful 
uh, venture capitalist firms in Silicon Valley, which has a pretty nice lean startup approach, or at least they used to. And then he took that approach and even made it better. So he has a great um, background. And so that's why I say he's not crazy. It's the movement that he's kind of heading up. It itself is crazy. He's just taking it to its logical conclusion. You know, a, a, a friend of the Bradley Center, Roman Yampolsky, on April Fool's put out a, uh, a tweet on social media. And he said, this is incredible. Google fires all of their programmers because they have developed a super AI that will write all of the programs of the future. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And uh, you know, if you if you just think about that, it's it it's just really ridiculous. Yet uh, he got a lot of thumbs up, and uh, he was he was even contacted by people in the media that said we want to talk more about this. And he said, "Look, it was a joke. It was simply a joke." <laughs> yeah, and if you th- so, let's uh, look at this from another perspective. If I told you, hey, I have this neat little black box and you can plug anything you want into it and this little black box will power it forever. It just creates an energy out of nothing. Like no one would take me seriously. But what Sam Altman is uh, claiming is exact equivalent of that, but in information theory instead of with energy. And actually, that if he was right about information theory, then you could probably actually turn that into a source of infinite energy too. So they've it's eventually essentially the perpetual motion machine for computer science. That's really yeah, that's very interesting. And of course, this idea of AI writing better AI that writes better AI assumes that AI is creative. We don't have time to get into the so-called Lovelace test, which is a measure of whether AI is creative or not. But according to the Lovelace test, artificial intelligence has yet to be creative. Yeah, and in, and in fact, well, the things we were just talking about, like the uh, Open GAN generating games and GPT generating text, uh, at least GPT, actually, that's part of Sam Altman's company. And all of his AI advances, even though they're pretty remarkable in themselves, they illustrate exactly this. The only things they're doing is regurgitating all of their training data, just a more finer grain and uh, in interpretation between data points, but it's all just reproducing what somebody else wrote. There is zero creativity in these AIs that have come out. Wow. It's really an embracement of materialism and determinism, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the ironic thing is that the more they buy into materialism, the less they actually create. Right. And I think that our, our stance is well, well grounded in computer science mm-hmm. and why people don't recognize this. I don't know. There's lots of people that believe AI will never be creative. This includes the recent Nobel laureate Roger Penrose in his book, An Emperor's New Mind, and um, Satya Nadella, who is the CEO of Microsoft said basically the same thing. He said, in the future, we're going to do a lot of things with artificial intelligence, but creativity is always going to belong to the programmer. So there's lots of people that understand the limitations of AI, yet there is still this, I don't know, theology out there that we're going to reach this idea of a singularity. No, it isn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Yeah. And I I would say it's actually, it it is actually close to kind of a religious belief because I had this conversation with other people and I'm like, well, I'm skeptical that the mind can be reproduced with a computer, but then they'll say, well, I mean, we evolved and all the things that evolved ultimately came from just uh, physical laws and atoms bumping into each other. So at least in theory, we should be able to create AI. So it is a logical deduction from a certain frame of reference. 
That's unfortunate. Uh, I still maintain AI will never be creative. It'll never be sentient. It'll never experience uh, qualia. It'll never understand what it's doing. It'll add the numbers seven and three, but it doesn't understand what the numbers seven or three are. So, yeah. So that's uh, that's the limitations of AI, which is unfortunate and apparently not recognized by uh, other people. Okay, number one. This is the number one of the dirty dozen hyped AI stories of 2020. And the number one has to do with Elon Musk again. By the way, number two, the Sam Altman, this open AI, that was an Elon Musk venture, right? Yeah, he collaborated with Elon Musk. Elon Musk is claiming AI is the biggest existential risk the human race faces, so he wants to make friendly AI. Yeah, and the interesting thing, he, he never talks about what the second most existential risk uh, for humanity is. And yeah. I would actually put thermonuclear weapons as a more of an existential Probably. risk. Yeah, but, but uh, also think about what they're claiming to be creating here. They're claiming to be creating a entity that is all-powerful, all-knowing, and since it's friendly, it's also all-loving. So what would be another name for such an entity? Oh, God. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they're basically yes, trying yes. to create uh, their own god. Yep. And in fact, that's the that's the topic of the book by John Lennox, 2084, where he talks about artificial intelligence and some of the hyperbolic claims which are made about the future of artificial intelligence. Okay, number one has to do with Musk again. Mind games. Elon Musk wants to connect your brain to a computer this year, and he says it's going to be awesome with his so-called Neuralink mind chip, and which he is preparing to launch. I've read some about this. He's implanted it in some people, hasn't he? This is, this is a report from the U.S. Sun. Jonathan, what's going on here? So Neuralink is basically what he's what he's done is he's uh, created these ultra thin wires that and and kind of a a robotic sewing machine that can insert these uh, super thin wires into a brain. So the Musk idea is that uh, he basically believes that everything interesting that happens in your brain is basically uh, electronic signals, and therefore if he can get electrodes in there. Anything that's wrong with your brain, if you can get enough electrodes pumping uh, data fast enough, uh, that he could fix whatever's wrong with your brain by simply offloading it to some sort of an external processor. And so uh, that's that's the idea of, of Neuralink. That uh, so he can basically uh, make a jack that connects uh, an external computer into your brain and uh, and take over functions. That's really strange. I, I think I'm already connected to a computer, but I don't have to have a chip in my brain. I use my fingers on my keyboard. And that that links me to uh, all of the knowledge uh, in the world. Um, you know, uh, when, when are you going to get your implant, uh, Jonathan? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'm going to be trusting anybody with that anytime soon. Yeah. Um, that, that seems a, it seems a little invasive. Um, although some, some people, some people are clamoring for it. They're like, yeah, I, I want to, I want to enhance myself. And part of me, uh, wonders what kind of, um, if there are self-esteem issues that are circling around that. <laughs> That's interesting. Do you know if he's had any success at all in this, in, in this Neuralink transplant or as far as I'm aware, there, there's never been, they haven't done anything with, with humans yet. Um, I could be wrong on that, but generally they've been doing, uh, rats or mice. Anyway, they, they've, um, this all kind of traces back to, um, I, I wrote an article about halfway through the year 
both level five self-driving and Neuralink both have an interesting connection with them. And that is this myth about the mind, that the mind is just uh, basically a, a computer processor. And this is kind of what, what you and Eric were talking about a moment ago. This myth about the mind that that all it is is just extended computation. And so for Musk, anything about the mind that's wrong, he can fix because every for him, everything about the mind is signals. And so if all he has to do is get something attached to your brain that's processing signals fast enough and he can fix it. Um, now that's a presumption. It's actually a huge presumption. I imagine he's got to know that, that that's a big leap of faith, but um, he's he's pushing it as if he knows that that's the answer. And um, that's that's the thing that's frustrating is that you know he, the things the claims that he makes for this are just outlandish because he he goes into things that we actually don't even know what the causes are, and he claims that Neuralink will be the solution. And so you know if to to say that a device that is not even been tried out is the cure for something for which we don't know the cause, that seems a little overhyped to me. He, he should rename his company 42. <laughs> oh, is that the, it's the answer to everything? Guide? It's the answer to life, universe, and everything. Yeah, 42. Is that it's the like Hitchhiker's, yeah. Hit, hitchhiker's, yeah, hitchhiker's guide, to guide, to guide to the Galaxy? Yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's kind of funny. You know, you know, intelligent design. Uh, I think there's three three reasons that we can have this complexity that we observe. One is an intelligent creator. The second one, which is purported, uh, is panspermia. That all of this complexity was was planted here on Earth by some aliens. Elon Musk actually put forward a third hypothesis of intelligent design, which is that we are all simulations. We are all computer simulations. We live in a big sim world. And I wonder how his Neuralink ties in with his theory that we are all simulations. Any ideas? Well, I think he's actually, I don't think it's another company, but he's funding individuals who are trying to find bugs in reality. You know, like the old movie, wait, The Matrix. Wait. Bugs in reality. Yeah, well, that's the that's the conclusion. If we if you think we live in a computer simulation, and then presumably it's written in some kind of code, and if the coder is not perfect, then there's going to be pu- bugs in our simulation. So he's trying to find bugs in reality, kind of like the glitch oh. in the Matrix, or kind of like the Truman Show when that big thing falls out of yeah, the sky. Right. <laughs> My goodness. Now there there's kind of a a faulty. Uh, logic that goes to, to why a lot of people think we live in a simulation. And uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the logic, then I'll tell you, tell you what the problem is with it. And that is that if you, if you imagine that we could simulate a universe, right? Um, well, if you, so let's say that there's only one actual universe, but then we figure out how we can simulate a universe. Well, as soon as we can simulate a universe, if we successfully simulate that universe, that means that in that universe that we're simulating, there are going to be creatures who figure out how to simulate a universe. And as soon as that happens, we're going to have more simulated universes than we have actual universes. And therefore, your chances of winding up in a simulated universe are actually much higher than your chance of existing in the actual universe. And so that's kind of the, that's the logic that's oftentimes used. So the, the problem with that is that, you know, it always takes more stuff to simulate something than the thing that you're simulating. 
So for example, if I, you know, if I, I, I can, I can make a model of uh, atoms moving around, but it actually requires entire computers, which are all made of trillions of atoms uh, to make that simulation. And so you actually kind of wind up with a space problem that you actually, you can't simulate as much as you have reality. And so even if you could make a perfect simulation of reality, it would have to be a smaller reality than what you're simulating it with. What if, what if it was a bunch of nested lossy simulations? Well, that that's possible, but then you'd, yeah, you'd have to, uh, you'd, you'd wind up being really lossy really fast. I'm sitting here trying to, getting back to the Neuralink, trying to understand what the Neuralink would do to me. Currently, I can only keep, uh, you know, a couple things in my brain. Like if I multiply two three-digit numbers, I have to write them down and I, I can't do the whole thing. I do it kind of one step at a time, right? Going through all of the multiplication processes that the the little algorithm that we use to multiply two three-digit numbers. And so the brain only has this capacity of keeping kind of one thing in, in the forefront of your mind at one time. I'm trying to understand how Neuralink would improve that I, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe it can. Maybe there is something that can be done. But do any of you have any thoughts on that? Uh, make identity theft really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> How is that? Well, well, say it worked, then, uh, I mean, hackers are hacking all our bank accounts. To, then next, they'll be hacking our brains and taking over our actual bodies. Oh, my goodness. Do these neural links, do they have any wireless connections? Do you know? <laughs> I, I hope not. I hope not. Hey, we've been working our way through the Dirty Dozen hype list with Bradley Center Brain Trust members Eric Holloway and Jonathan Bartlett. We are not going to be totally negative. We are on a subsequent podcast going to go through the top 10 smash hits of artificial intelligence for 2020. There's lots of exciting stuff happening in artificial intelligence. So until then, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.